Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Thanks so much for joining us here on The Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. Clark.com is our main website, and Clark.com slash ask is where you go to ask me a question. And you can also ask questions off the air. That's a free service of our show where you can talk with a member of our team that's available nine hours each weekday. And if you scroll kind of halfway down the home screen of Clark.com, you'll see the hours and how to call in to get the free off-the-air advice. Coming up in 20 minutes, there's a new plan that's being touted as a great way for you to do your computers. And I want to tell you, I think it's rotten terrible, truly Clark Rages. I'm going to give you a good alternative. And, you know, later... I want to talk about the solar eclipse. There's such buzz about it, such excitement, and there's something that I want to make sure you do, and that is that you prepare, be prepared to protect your eyes and those of the ones you love, because there's a lot of counterfeit glasses out there for the solar eclipse, and that would be a terrible way to end up causing permanent eye damage. So I'm going to tell you the right way to protect your eyes during the solar eclipse, not taking a nap through it, something else. And unless you've been napping, you are aware that the stock market has been on a tear. Since its low point in 2009, the stock market has basically quadrupled. The Dow, which is what what people hear quoted over and over again, but is actually an outdated index for stocks but the one that people use is like a yardstick is up from a low of around 6,000 back during 09 to now a record past 22,000 and it can fall back from that but the point is it's crossed 22,000 that is an extraordinary run for the stock market you think about historically over time the stock market returns somewhere between 8 and 10% per year on average, but it has years where it falls apart, years where it skyrockets, and everything in between. So quadrupling in eight years is over-the-top extreme. So there's some things I want you to think about. Back in 2009, and in the environs around that 7, 8, and 9, people felt like they needed to bail. And whatever people had in stock-type choices and 401ks or IRAs or investment accounts, they got out of those. And I remember the refrain over and over again, I'm going to wait till it feels safe or it's safe to get back in. Well, generally what happens is that people wait to get back in until after things have gone back up. It would be like going into a store and they're having a half-price sale. And you say, oh, I'm not going to buy that at half-price. I'm going to wait till it goes back to retail. 
You don't do that, right? You buy something when you know it's a bona fide legitimate deal. But for some reason with investing, our tendency is to do the opposite. Now people are piling in. The number of money that individuals are putting into stocks is also, by some measures, an all-time record amount of money. So I want to caution you against doing that yo-yo thing, that suddenly because of the values being at record highs, you feel like, oh, i got to throw more money in. This is going to the sky. It doesn't go to the sky. The value of stocks ultimately is based on the earnings of a company. Right now, people are willing to pay more for stocks than those earnings would historically compute to. So stocks are, to some degree, overvalued. But regardless, stocks go up and down over time, a lot of times for things that you can't even predict right now. Not what you expect, it's what you don't know to expect, what you don't think will happen or it doesn't even occur to you, is what leads to a decline in stock. So my thing, and it's always my thing, is that I have a plan to diversify my money. I put money into that diversified plan, in my case, once a month. I'm very heavily in index funds where the money is spread out among thousands of stocks. But I also have a certain amount of money in cash, I have a certain amount in bonds, and I have money in real estate. I am as diversified as you could possibly be. Never try to bet everything all one way. And I'll hear people say, oh, I'm going all into this, or all into that, or all into the other. Maybe that works for them. But... I'm the slowest runner in any race I'm in. And I'm the, my wife calls me the turtle, and that's exactly how I invest. Slow and steady, and I try to make money over time and never try to go for the big score. So today's headlines, they're not a signal for you to take money and just willy-nilly throw it into stocks far from it. John is with us on the Clark Howard Show. John, you want to talk about your 401k? Yes. Clark, back around the time of our presidential election, I took my 401k money out of my index fund and placed it in a money market fund. I did this because I was hearing a lot of reports about uh, there would be a dip there would maybe even a significant dip uh, with, uh, with the new president being elected. And there was a tiny dip of about 1.7 points, but brilliant me, I was like, I, I need a bigger dip than that. I need at least 5%. So I kept my money in the, in the index, not the index fund, in the, in the money market fund. Now, as you know, as you were just saying, the market has got stocks have gone up like at least like 40 percent since that time oh 20 20 don't beat yourself up more than you need to (laughs) yeah so my question is what should i do because i don't want to sell i i don't want to buy high i don't necessarily want to put it back in and buy high but at the same time uh 
you know, it's not really working for me where it's at either. Right, sure. So tell me your investment window. When do you need the money that is in this 401k? I'm looking at, uh, 20, well, 25 years, actually 23 years now. So with more than two decades, whatever happens today, whatever happens next month, next year, is a footnote. Mm-hmm. It's an asterisk. It won't, it won't matter. If you look at investing returns over the decades and you put in a longer window, you'll see that all those ups and downs kind of level out. And what you're, what you're investing for over a multi-decade period, you know, 23 years, is you're investing banking on the success of business people to create new products, new ideas, new services that people want to buy, new inventions, and that that creates additional wealth over time. Okay. So... I wouldn't worry about, is the market overvalued now? Might it fall off a cliff sometime later this year or next year or some war breaks out or whatever? You, you need to look at the time horizon you've got, and if it makes you feel more comfortable, every 90 days, put a fourth of the money that you had put on the sidelines back into uh, like a target retirement fund or whatever, and over a year or two's time, get your money back in the market. If you do it in, in 90-day chunks over a year or two, you, you won't have to worry as much about a sudden large drop in the market that could happen sometime in the short term. It deals with the psychological concern you've got. I was thinking of doing something similar to that, uh, directing my deposits back into the index fund, maybe putting just a portion of my money back in the index fund, and then, as you said, just over the months, uh, taking a percentage and putting putting it back in over time. Well, have a plan and be methodical about it to get the money back in. Okay. And you'll be fine. And, you know, don't worry about the last nine months. Okay. You know, we're looking at decades here, and mm-hmm. so you're going to be fine because the most important thing is that you have money in a 401k, right? Yes. That's the most important aspect because so many people don't contribute sufficiently to retirement accounts, and that's why that's where I really want your emphasis. Andre is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Andre. Hi there, Clark. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm very excited to be talking with you. Well, it's great to have you here. And you are a landlord. How many properties do you have? Well, actually, I'm no longer a landlord. I'm actually, uh, my brother is getting into it, and I've been out of the game for a while, and uh, trying to help him save money and and do things right so that he has a a good experience uh, as being a landlord. Um, I had a question about... uh, seeing about using Credit Karma for getting credit scores. Oh, for the potential tenants? Right. right. Yeah. In screening tenants. Technically, that you're not supposed to do that. So, so let me tell you well, what your brother is allowed to do. All right. Your brother is allowed to and should have some kind of tenant application form. And just as if somebody was going to rent from an apartment complex... They would have to do an application, pay an application fee. They would also sign for permission 
to have a credit check run. It could be a credit check or a more extensive background check, however deep your brother wants to go. And right. so if that's done, then there are services that your brother can use to pull the credit of a prospective tenant. Okay. I was, I was wondering if it would uh, be something where potential tenants may be encouraged to go check the credit score on their own. In, then... in an informal kind of thing, you could do that. Okay. Uh, that's, not, that's not the proper way to do it technically, but if your brother's renting one rental property and he says, hey, I just need to see how you're doing with your credit, I can charge you to do it and pull it commercially, or you can go register at this website and just give me your report. Uh, okay. So he can give it as a choice to a prospective tenant. All right. But All right, there are good. services. I've got some links at Clark.com that you can use to actually uh, pull a pr- prospective tenant's credit. You just must have their permission and then a landlord doesn't absorb that cost. They charge it to the prospect. So gotcha. your alternative of thinking about it, saying this is a way my brother can be protected and the prospective tenant doesn't have to pay that fee, if that works for everybody, I think that's great. Okay. Um, while I've got you, what do you think a minimum recommended score uh, you know, criteria should be? <sighs> A lot of landlords are looking for a 680 or above. And it's all a matter of what level of risk your brother is willing to take on, including what some landlords do is instead of a yes or no, the security deposit rises or falls based on the credit profile of the individual they'd be renting to. Okay, that makes sense. So if somebody has, let's say they say, well, yeah, I did have that car repossessed, but this is what happened. I lost my job or I was in hospital or whatever. And and you believe them, you also need to protect yourself and have a larger security deposit that they pay in the event that they aren't able to pay the rent. And there are expenses involved for a landlord when that happens. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations, so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Today's Clark Rageous moment involves a very well-known, very respected company that is coming up with a new sales model I want to make sure you're aware of that will be touted as a great deal for your wallet. I think it's anything but. Scams, rip-offs, outrages. It's a Clark Rageous moment. Microsoft is doing a big push to try to get you to go into a perpetual rental mode with them where you get Microsoft Surface tablets or laptops where you do it for just a low monthly fee of typically $34 to $42 a month. And you pay it month after month after month. And the beauty of it is that you can upgrade to newer devices and get the latest features and all that simply by paying your subscription. 
Well, paying rent in perpetuity is not one of my favorite ideas. And with technology, Google offers such a different way of doing things with the Chromebooks. With a Chromebook, you're able to buy a device for 100 to, you can buy a really fancy one for like $250, and you own the thing. But then the really neat thing is all the productivity suite stuff is free from Google. Free. Free is a really good price. So you buy the device, they're continually updating all the software, you use it for free, the devices are virtually virus-free, well, they are virus-free. They're virtually impenetrable. I would never say that anything's completely impenetrable. But the thing is, more and more, the business model you will see touted is one where you never own electronics, but you're always paying for those electronics. And I guess there could be rare circumstances where that's a good idea. A lot of people who are really into the whole iPhone thing and always want the latest, greatest model will perpetually always be paying under these iPhone rental models. But just know it's a much more expensive way for you to access technology than just buying something and being, well, happy with it. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our main web address, ClarkDeals.com, where you go to find the bargains. And there are bargains galore right now on glasses for the eclipse coming up in just a few weeks. And I need to let you know there are warnings from all over the place in the scientific community for you to be very wary that a lot of the uh, glasses being sold to protect your eyes from the solar eclipse are counterfeits, do not have the elements necessary to protect your eyes. So we've done the best we could in this case, both at Clark.com and at Clark Deals, to brief you on what you look for to know that what you're buying or to be as assured as you can be that what you're buying will keep your and your family members' eyes safe. On Clark Deals, we have information on the cheapest prices out there. For our staff, I bought 50 pair of these. cost me $1.50 each to buy 50 of them. And so they will be protected with the not fashionable eyewear that I have gotten for them. Lowe's, the Home Improvement Center, is selling eclipse glasses that meet the standards for $1.98 a pair. So you can buy one at a time for $1.98 while they have them in stock. 
But this is something that you're supposed to be very, very careful about. And I am just so impressed with the buzz from people about this natural phenomenon coming up. And there are people who aren't excited about it yet that will really get into it over the next couple of weeks. And our producer, Kim, is going to be far, far away. So you're going to miss the whole thing? Miss the whole thing. It's going to be nighttime where I am. I'm going to be in Spain. In España. True. But um, I had one other thing. I can picture the Clark Stinks already that people are going to be like, you paid one fifty each. Oh, my gosh. I could $1.50? Yeah. yeah. I found it mine for 25 cents. Um, Clark's not kidding when he talks about all the fake ones out there, and they are ridiculously cheap. The reason that he was so nice to buy us ones that cost $1.50 each is because they're really, really the real deal. So please don't get taken away with a really cheap price. But a dollar fifty, you know, that's a lot. And okay, so I have a confession. I do have a confession. Maybe I'll be one of the late people to get excited about it. I am not into it, but I know so many members of my team are into it, and I want to protect all their eyes. So even that's why more I bought so, the fifty of them. Yes, we appreciate that so much. But also, as as a group, we don't understand why you're not into it. It's no, so cool. you don't understand why I'm not don't, into it. I mean, help it's, me out here. Well, I've never seen anything like it, and I'm really excited to see it. So it does. Ba- it's such a natural phenomenon that it almost never occurs. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, it doesn't make sense to me that you're not interested in right. seeing it. Mark my words now. If after the eclipse, I'm like all gaga over it, I will go on the air and say I was wrong. I missed what the buildup was about. And it was life-changing. Okay, that's a bit much. (laughs) Is that too much? So you got to know, Kim made fun of me that I was all excited about the window design on a particular version of a Boeing jet. And she's like, how can you be so excited about the design of a passenger window on a jet and you can't be excited about this phenomenon of having a total eclipse? I don't know what to tell you. So, Jessica, how about you? Are you really excited about the total eclipse? I'm pretty excited, Clark. I've so, got two little ones. We're gonna we're gonna take a little trip up north and make sure we can see it. All right. So make sure you get those safe glasses I'm talking about. So I've got the okay. guide, and I've got some. We've got some scientific backup for it. We've done some reading on scientific journals to make sure we get the information right so that you get the right stuff to protect your kids. I'll definitely check it out on And the yourself, too. So, <laughs> yeah. so what's wrong with me that I just don't have excitement? I don't know. I can't wait to find out after it happens if you're going to be excited about it, because it's pretty cool. I'm excited about it. Okay. It's going to be neat. <laughs> well, Jessica, how can I serve you today? Um, well, I, I have a... It might be kind of a silly question, but... Um, I have a handful of credit cards and charge cards for department stores that I've had since I was 18, 20, you know, in my college days. And um, they have less than desirable or non-existent rewards. And I'm interested in a a fancy new grown-up card that has maybe some miles, mile, uh, sky mile kind of thing. Air, tra- air travel. So um, my question is, 
should I close all of my old cards or just leave them open and let them ride? I don't, I, I try do they, to Do any of them have annual fees? No. Leave them all open. Okay. And okay. as far as a new card, tell me how much dollar volume do you charge per month? Oh, gosh. Um, maybe about $1,000. Okay, so if you charge uh, roughly $12,000 a year, mm-hmm. don't bother with any airline mileage card. Really? Okay. Because the way those work is you need to be someone who like owns his or her own business and is charging sure. stuff all the time for the business or someone who just uh, yeah. does everything they do in their life on credit cards and racks up a lot of dollars and charges because really the the airline mileage cards don't start becoming really productive till you have a charge volume of I know it's going to sound like a ridiculous number of about $8,000 a month or more. Right. So you're better off just getting a card that just gives you cash. Okay. Cuz cash is great. You can spend it any day of the week. They don't say oh we don't have any seats available on that day, you know, you you got the cash. Right. And the market's so competitive right now that you can get 2% cash back on everything you do. Okay. Two's a good number. Yeah, okay. So okay, let me great. give you a couple of choices. The most popular of the 2% cash back cards is from Citibank. It's okay. the Citibank called City Double Cash Reward, I think is what they call it. Okay. And then another is, do you happen to have any investment accounts at the big company, the big investment company called Fidelity Investments? I do. Yeah. Okay, then you should go to Fidelity because they have a 2% cashback card. And people who are Fidelity customers, it's just ideal to have their 2% cashback card. Okay, what, what makes it better than the city card? It's because you're already a Fidelity customer and it just easily uh, goes okay. into, you can either put it into a Fidelity retirement account that you have, a Fidelity investment account, or a Fidelity 529 college savings account. Right, okay, great. So it gives you the real flexibility and you earn that 2%. Okay, and then just, just lock the other ones up and, and ignore them? Uh, if you could, I know I'm asking a lot of you, but if you could methodically, like once a year, use the major credit cards, I don't care about any store card, use the major ones just for a quick transaction, a couple of dollars somewhere, so that they stay active in your credit mix would be really good for you in terms of your overall credit score. Ted is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Ted, I understand you are boiling hot at me about what I say about auto and homeowners insurance these days. I wouldn't say boiling hot. Oh, come on, Ted. Let's be boiling hot. Let's make it exciting here. No, I, I, I love you, Clark. You, you have great advice for everybody. But this is, this is one, one issue that I, I, every time I hear you, it, it, does, it, it does get me boiling a little bit, I guess. All right. Well, let me know. So... You suggest that people shop their insurance on a regular basis if they've been with a long, long time with the same company, because the, the company is going to start taking advantage of them and, and raise their rates because they know that they're they're going to stick around. Um, and in my experience with a major insurance company that I'm an agent for, that is not true. Um, actually, we treat them better and better as as they become a long term customer. 
Well, your company is then doing it differently than a number of others because this first came out with good documentation two years ago um, that there are insurers that are using a loyalty index score and they they have this loyalty index or loyalty algorithm and they've been able to back test who is likely to dump them if they raise their premiums a lot and who's not so they've been able to drill down to the individual policyholder and there are factors they look at that even go beyond what they do with insurance and they have this loyalty index score for that individual and if they know that person is loyal above all then they're going to reward them by raising their rates wow so if you were to if you go to google or any search engine and you put in a search about uh insurance loyalty index score you'll see how this is done now the fact that your insurer doesn't do it is great for your policyholders because you're not always having to apologize to them. Well, I'm sorry, I don't know why your rates are going up so much, but it's uh, it's a technique that has worked for some of the insurers to increase the profitability of their long-term loyal customers. Well, that's really really sad to hear that, but we're able to see quite clearly what reasons premiums change and and how people are rated and. Absolutely, something like this would not be in, is not in that mix that that there's any way for me to be aware of. So I, so I, I, just, I, I just hate you when you generically state all insurance companies. You, you you don't like insurance companies much. So every time I hear something, oh, I have to listen. So am I am I bad like that? You are kind of bad that way, but I still appreciate you. <laughs> well, thank you for that, and it, and it is one of my failings that I do paint with a broad brush. And it is an oversimplification when I refer to any industry uh, more than any other, the banks, and paint the banks with one broad brush of negativity. And so it is a character flaw that I always have to be reminded of. Well, I appreciate that. And one thing I wanted to ask you, I've talked a lot recently about uh, credit scoring being used to determine auto and homeowners insurance rates. And I don't know if in your state... That's an allowed factor. But as somebody who's on the front lines, do you think that it should be the most important factor in setting auto and homeowners insurance rates, somebody's credit score? I I definitely don't think it should be the the overriding setting for it, but I do see that it's a useful tool. I mean, I I can see from my experience, just from the the many policyholders that I have, the people with the lowest credit scores, and I don't see their scores, but I see a, a, a number, um, do have a lot more claims than people with their best credit scores, and I can see where there's an advantage to someone that is statistically going to have less claims paying less money for their premium. Well, that is, that's exactly what the insurers have said over the years, is that there is a direct and intense correlation between credit score and claims experience. And my thing has been that with driving that people should be judged based on how they drive, but the insurance industry feels strongly that's not the important criteria. Brian is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Brian, or should I refer to you as doctor? Well, not yet. (laughs) Not yet. Soon, Dr. Brian? Yes, hopefully. What are you getting your PhD in? 
uh, biochemistry. Oh, you're a brainiac, Dr. Uh, DeBee. I, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> wow, that's a great field, isn't it? It is. It's got a lot of growth, that's for sure. Wow, how can I be of service to you? Because you got well, brains that run circles amount, around my brain. Well, not, not when it comes to finances, I'll give you that. <laughs> well, let's see if I can serve you. So I'm going to be graduating with about $106,000 in debt. Um, uh, uh, about, rounding error, 106. Yeah, right about. <laughs> yeah. It, but it's, it's, so it's all, it's all federal loans. Uh, I'm going to have a PhD in a science field. Um, so I'm probably going to have a decent salary. And I was just wondering, you know, if I should take the extra income and put it towards student loans to pay them off sooner, or if I should take the extra income and put it into retirement. So you're going to be working in the for-profit sector. You're not going to be with government or a university-based setting. Uh, actually, oh, most likely I'll be with the university. So this brings up a conundrum, because if you're going to be working at the university, you may be eligible for loan forgiveness after 10 years. Okay. And so I want you to stay on top of what changes are likely coming, because Every time we have a new administration, they change how student loans work. Sure. But under the rules of today, if you were working in a university setting, you would only have to make minimum payments on that student loan pile, and then after 10 years, it would be forgiven. And under that program, in certain circumstances, you don't even have to pay tax on the money that's forgiven. Wow. Okay. Now, if the rules change and you have to pay off the loans... If the university, if you're working at the university and they offer a retirement plan with any form of match, mm-hmm. you definitely want to contribute to the retirement program to pick up whatever match is being offered. Okay. But absent that, your blended average student loan as a grad student is probably somewhere in the 6% range? Correct, yes. So at 6% or above... Paying off those student loans as quickly as you can would be a higher priority than retirement savings if there's no match. Okay. Now, the other issue is that I'm 33 years old, so I'm older. That's okay. Uh, That's okay. Yep. If you're yep. With your degree, you should have nice earning power, okay. and I would set a goal of paying these loans off in a decade. Okay. And I mean, think about it. Either way, you're done in a decade. If there's still loan forgiveness, you're done in a decade. If you have to pay for them, you're done in a decade. Now, I, I was under the impression that the loan forgiveness was only if you're a high school teacher, like if you're a. Like no, there's there's a number of criteria for loan forgiveness. That's why I said, and we got to wait to see how the rules are going to change. Sure. And you don't have your PhD yet, so there's still time to wait and see how the rules shake out. Okay. And if you end up being eligible for loan forgiveness after 10 years, make minimum payments. Then you have plenty of money to put into retirement accounts and know that your student loans will be gone by your 43rd birthday. Okay. Either way. So you have a great glide path because you've chosen to study in an area that is much in demand and has very good pay levels to it. And you're going to make a difference in the world all at the same time. That would be what gamblers would call a trifecta. And good for you that you have that kind of brain that you can do that and have a PhD in that. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. 
Thanks for tuning into the Clark Howard Show today. And if you're like me, you like deals, well, we got our deal diggers hard at work at ClarkDeals.com that help you save money day in and day out. We work around the clock to find the best deals for your wallet, and they're on a variety of consumer items. Check out ClarkDeals.com.